know, there has always been some historical hesitancy to vaccinations, and some of that is not misplaced. You know, if we look at the history of medical science, sadly, there was a time where people that were different were seen as the people to experiment or try things out on. So there is that context, and, you know, that goes on into slavery and goes on there, so that exists. I'm Neil Maggs, and this is Bristol Unpacked, speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, The Bristol Cable. As Bristol leaps near the top of the charts when it comes to COVID vaccinations across the country, this week we talk to a pharmacist, Addy Williams, who is based in Bedminster. He has been administrating vaccines on a daily basis. We talk to him about why black and ethnic minority people are nervous and sceptical about the vaccine, how we can start to challenge that, and where the COVID conspiracies are coming from, and what will life look like after lockdown. Addy! Hello, Neil. How you doing? I'm fine, thank you. Where are you? Where am I talking to you from? So it's evening in the house and the child is being bribed to keep away and not create a moment for us. It's a nightmare, isn't it? I've just had to put my three screaming to bed in front of a film upstairs. So you're a pharmacist, run a pharmacy in Bedminster. How long have you been there? I've been in Bedminster for six years now. I've really got to love my patients. You know, Bedminster is a unique place when you kind of absorb it. And I think I've come to really understand not just what their health needs are, but to really understand a lot more about life. And they teach me a lot about life, actually. And it's changed a lot, hasn't it? Bedminster, you know, now it feels quite, almost like you're in a London suburb a little bit. It is. And, you know, and there is that tension in there. Not, Not the tension of change, but the tension of not trying to displace or lose people that you know Bemis is a working class South Bristol suburb alongside young metropolitan field I think our challenge is to make sure everybody can live together and when the two collide in a place like a pharmacy where everybody comes into it's amazing for sure you're now one of the lucky people that is administrating COVID-19 vaccines so we started doing the COVID-19 vaccinations Thursday last week, and it's been going well. The way it works is that we are providing the service on behalf of the NHS, but we're doing it from the Methodist Church on British Road. And I think it's very important that you don't just hear and see COVID vaccination as something on the news, but to have it in your community, to see people walking into a place, coming out, must be visible for people to feel that it's attainable. If you can't see it, you just kind of think it's never going to come to me. I'm one of these people that's only seen it really in the media. What happens? What do you do? So at the moment, we're still working through the priority list. Recently, we've heard that we've been able to vaccinate all of the over 80s, which was a government target. So the priority list is trying to set out the most vulnerable people and walk down that list. Right, because obviously at the moment, lots of people are saying that teachers should be vaccinated. What's your What's your take on that? I think the issue with the priority list is that whatever way you go about this, there will be some people that you will miss out on. And I think the list itself was done by a committee of people independent from the government. And I guess the real tension was everybody knew who were the top four groups of people that we needed to vaccinate. And I think we have now made good way in that priority list. 
one of the things then is to start to now look and think, okay, who are the yeah. other people that may not ordinarily be be more vulnerable? Maybe that's not the right phrase, but it's also now balancing that their importance or how vital they are towards the whole society. Because when you start to go down that road, the danger is that you start to then say, well, somebody is less valuable because of their own role. Let's just keep going faster, 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 faster. The encouraging bit is that we are doing better than we expected. It doesn't really matter where you are anymore because you're not going to be hanging around waiting for a long period of time. And I think you can start to have that conversation a bit more now. I mean, my understanding is, I think by mid-February, everyone who's over 70, which is 15 million or so people, will be vaccinated. Uh, Priority groups and over 50s by spring. And they say, and this is on the government website, that that is 90 to 99% of all people that are at risk of dying from COVID. You know, nobody's had any nasty sort of side effects, fainting, falling over, because you hear all this sort of conspiracy stuff about bad reactions and things all over social media. You know, it's, it's been fine. Like you said, there is lots of misinformation that feeds into people's natural aversion to having a needle going to their arm anyway. But the experiences have been really positive. I'm seeing some of the most vulnerable people in society at the moment having their vaccines and they're kind of skipping out of the place. And so it really gives you the confidence that, well, when we go down that priority list, you know, we are only less likely to find who will have those extreme or rare side effects that are mentioned. But so far, not a single person. So that's really good do you get like you know like when you go to give blood and you get a biscuit and you have to sit and <laughs> sit down for an hour it's not like that no you're in and out really you know quick my said. neil if you come in i promise you i will make sure you get a biscuit and i will <laughs> and i will even bring out a vaccination teddy for you you know oh lovely lovely if you have the pfizer vaccine after you've had that particular one you have to wait for 15 minutes just to make sure that you're okay before you skip out but with the AstraZeneca one, which is the one that we are predominantly administering, actually, it's very similar in the protocol with the flu vaccination. So you have the job. If you're okay, you can go. If you feel that you would like to wait for a short period of time, then you do that. But, you know, you come in, you have a job, and then you, you go on with your life. But the enormity of it, you cry. I think I cried the very first day because you really you know, some of the people we're seeing they haven't been out of their house for over yeah. a year you know somebody's coming in and they've been shielding really shielding because they're so vulnerable and then they have the job and you have people saying oh can i just wait a minute before you do the job because it's almost this sense of you know this day has come yeah it must be quite a massive thing if trying to put my head into you know somebody is on that vulnerable yeah. list 80 to 85 percent protection on the first vaccine so you're halfway there to the next one people must feel quite elated i suppose it must be and when you think about it in the context of last week the really tragic landmark of a hundred thousand deaths yeah yeah that really makes you aware that oh that could be me so when you come in for a vaccination you're thinking wow i made it and sometimes you know people that haven't made it do you say landmark hundred thousand deaths the worst in the whole of europe I think we're only behind the United States, Brazil, India and Mexico. Boris said, we have done the best we could. We've done the best we could. Do you agree? I think it's a difficult question, you know, because no government has ever dealt with a pandemic. But I think the British people, we're shocked. And I think part of it is that because we're still going through this, 
and 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 there will be lots of questions that do need to be answered you know because if you're a family that you've lost a loved one you want to find out you know how did this happen what what what's wrong with our society what's wrong with our healthcare system that as one of the most developed countries in the world we were so vulnerable to this virus why couldn't we do things differently and if you're particularly a person of color or a black person and you look at some of the statistics and you will also ask the question why is this why did this happen to to people like myself in this country so there are questions to ask do we think that anybody didn't put in the most effort into it i don't think so i think you know i know any that- specific any specific mistakes that this well and you're right this is the first time certainly in several generations we've had to deal with something like this but we were ahead of the game a bit because we could see what was happening in china we could see what was happening in mainland europe in italy and we could see what was happening in spain so there was some evidence out there to see what this was going to be but we kind of you know, there were a number of things around that period in particular. I mean, you know, the PPE, the care home situations, late lockdown, we had Cheltenham races that went ahead with sort of 250,000 people. And then we've moved on to sort of confusing tier systems. Teachers almost having to threaten to strike for schools to close. One thing I will say, and I know it's a really difficult situation for whatever leader it would be, but we do seem to be quite reactive, not proactive. And And I think there is... There is almost a question for us to ask ourselves to say, as a society, were we ready to give up as much as we needed to, to protect ourselves and each other? And I think that seems to be the difficult decisions that needed to be made. Were we be ready for a lockdown? Would we be okay for the length of a lockdown? Would we be like other countries that... They really just threw everything in and and held the line. Could we hold the line? My perspective of it was looking at the first lockdown and looking around Bedminster and really being scared, really being scared for my patients, thinking of how vulnerable they were and and actually how many of them, when the lockdown was was announced, sadly, were still coming in and you know you're thinking you shouldn't be here you know is that is that because of the mixed messaging and the lack of authority or is that because British people don't like being told what to do and they (laughs) (laughs) was a bit of both maybe I think it's a bit of both but I think also Neil and I think one of the things that we mustn't forget is because of the levels of health inequalities and the socioeconomic divide that existed whereby for some of us maybe you know working from home social isolation almost felt like a sabbatical a mini retirement you know a time to read book yeah. and big bread and that and for yeah, other people yeah. actually it is completely disrupted whatever life they had you know the yeah. pub was their only social interaction they went out not for you know that was they went out to to be seen to to meet what people it's and, a really good point that a lot of people don't realize and is that yeah particularly if you live in working class areas where yeah. you don't have so much space inside you don't have a big garden those communal spaces, community centres, pubs, where you congregate, even hanging about on the street kind of thing, that, that is part of the kind of culture, really. That is part of it. Yeah. And I think maybe when we look back at this, we will see, and I think one of the things that has come out already from some of the early research is just how the things that we have put up with and accommodated as a society really came to haunt us during the pandemic. And there is also the fact that you know, there was a sense of maybe hesitancy at taking away freedoms, which which is part of the British identity. 
and that's very much a Boris thing. Boris would consider himself a, a one-nation conservative, a free marketeer, and very much around kind of individual liberty. And I think it went against his own instinct to suddenly start, you know, kind of bailing out the public sector, bailing out the private sector, having to tell people that they, you know, they can't go here. These sort of slightly draconian things. My brother came back from Vietnam actually around late January, and he just said over there it, it was remarkable. Everything just shut down. <laughs> Everything just shut down. And I think those countries where there is perhaps more of I don't know a, a kind of state-run utilities place, they seem to have fared better than some of the countries you know like India, Brazil, here, United States, where there is a I guess a more emphasis upon individual freedom. Do you think it was a bit of a cultural thing and still is harder for people to get used to this whole idea? I think so. And I think also one of the things that maybe for me, reflecting on it, was also to think about how how we engineer our society, whereby the relationships that we have with the state and with each other is to say that we're going to look out for everybody without having to cast any aspersions on you or put any sort of impediments into the situation that we have to help you out of. And, and I think there is the whole kind of looking now at what our social contract as society, with government and with each other is. Because community came true. That is the story of this. And for me, as somebody in Bedminster, just looking out at the COVID response group, helping to deliver medicines and restaurants, giving out food and food banks being set up. You look around and think, wow, community did come true. What I noticed was as community really started stepping up, people started staying in. Because what the fear of, oh, if I don't go out, well, I've got nobody. Nobody's going to remember me. Nobody cares about me. Actually, as that narrative changed, people started staying indoors. So maybe there is also a lesson for us about what kind of society did we have before then? But what kind of society do we want moving forward? And looking at the countries I've done, better than most and picking some of the best you don't want the draconian ones that are just really devoid of any part of personal liberty but saying how do we make sure that actually we have a social contract with each other that means that if i know that i have to make a sacrifice for all of us the rest of us are going to look out for me too just pause for a second And in this episode, we're obviously talking quite a lot about the need for quality information to help build healthy communities. And you can do that with the Bristol Cable. Help us with our mission to do exactly the same. Chip in a pound or two a month. Head to the website www.thebristolcable.org to find out more. And while you're there, lots of you may be listening to this on the Cable website, which is fantastic. But you can listen to it in podcasters too, on Apple, Spotify and Acast and a few others. So just chuck in Bristol Unpacked and you'll find it. So people from a real grassroots level have taken it upon themselves. Yeah, because one of the things about the lockdown, taking people's liberties, also was actually how we made people very vulnerable. You know, the, the dignity. If you're a poor person, you live with dignity. You find a way to put things together, to hold your own in society. Now, if you lose that, you then not only aware of all the things you don't have, but you're also aware of being found out. The things that I used to do to cover up for myself, I can't do that anymore. I'm robbed of my dignity. And Bristol really responded. I think we all thought, okay, what more can I do to help in this situation? 
Let's look at some of the social, economic and existing kind of health inequalities that COVID has exposed. One in particular, you're, you're black yep. yourself. We do know now that there is a, a disproportionate effect upon the BME community, black and ethnic minority community. So 67% of the workforce in adult social care are from black and ethnic minority backgrounds. So they're, you know, by definition going to be exposed to people with COVID more. There are pre-existing conditions, uh, coronary heart disease in the Asian community, hypertension, stroke type 2 diabetes is more prevalent in the Black and African Caribbean communities. There's the health element, then there's obviously the sort of social element as well. There's a big kind of debate around vitamin D, which obviously has a as an impact upon, and there is, I think, 76% of vitamin D efficiency in some Black and African minority communities. There is science behind that, but it's also a very sensitive subject because some people kind of feel that it takes away the those kind of social inequalities at the same time. What's your take on this? How much of an impact is health and how much an impact is social factors? Is why we're seeing such a high percentage of, of I think, 32% of COVID deaths in intensive care are black and minority people. I mean, it's, it's a crazy statistic. It, no, and it's a tragic statistic. Tragic statistic, yeah. yeah. It, it is. It's, it's really heartbreaking to think about that. And, and the way I have come to view it, the two key things that comes out when you look at the people that have been most affected by COVID. The first one is the background vulnerability. And, you know, you've mentioned about that, which is the issues around the prevalence of health conditions and comorbidities and respiratory problems and, you know, sometimes health ignorance and, you know, evidence emerging about vitamin D and living in maybe inner city concentrations of some of minority ethnic groups and hair pollution, which again is very topical for a city like Bristol. Yeah. There is all of yeah. those things there. But the other bit as well is the compromised ability to respond. And I think in there is really where the tragedy is. Because what that really speaks about is a lot of the inherent structural and social health inequalities, which meant that when COVID came, you know, your, your housing situation, your work situation, your socioeconomic situation did not give you some of the options that other people had. Your lack of power in terms of your ability to maybe request for a different working arrangement or protective wear. Some of those things are also unfortunately inherently part of why COVID has really affected some of the black and minority ethnic communities. And we know that that's true. So that compromised ability to respond is really a scar on all our consciences. We as a society should not accept the fact that some people yeah. spend more of their lifetime in bad health or some yeah. people spend more of their lifetime in poverty. We know that you know there's life expectancy differences of about 15 Absolutely. years in Bristol, pretending what part of the city you'd come from. We know the impact of social conditions upon health. So it's all there. And I think you're right. I think COVID, in a weird, strange, warped way, in the long, long, long run, is, is possibly opened up the conversation more about some of this stuff and how much longer are we going to tolerate social inequality on the scale at which we do yeah and i think also for every one of us if you haven't done this and i'm not saying this to kind of make people feel guilty or anything it would be nice to reflect on some of the people that have died actually that are not like you yeah it's going to be very different from your story but what he will tell you about what their loss meant to them and their loved ones and and it then makes you to think wow actually 
why did this happen and how can we stop this sort of thing happening? Because sure. into that tragedy will keep happening, not to the scale of COVID, but it does happen. You know, people's yeah. lives keep getting lost wherever inequalities are not addressed. It's just lifted the lid on it more, isn't it? That's I think seventy six percent of people, three quarters of people, would take the vaccine if advised by their GP and only 8% would be unlikely to. This was a poll by the Royal Society for Public Health, but 50% of BME people were likely to be hesitant to take the vaccine. Christina Marriott, who is the CEO of the Royal Society for Public Health, said, this is not surprising. We have known for years that different communities have different levels of satisfaction with the NHS and have seen anti-vaccination messages specifically targeted at different groups, including ethnic or religious communities. And the CEO of the Race Equality Foundation, Jabir Butt, said, this appears to be particularly worrying as it suggests that the vaccine may not reach communities disproportionately impacted so is this something that you're seeing i think yes at the beginning of the vaccination program but one of the things neil that i'm also very proud of is that bristol has got a very proactive coming together of lots of different parts of it you know healthcare professionals faith communities community leaders that really understand that this is a problem and they've been tackling it head on. I noticed today that in this blog, the leader of the opposition was talking about how cities should work together with healthcare professionals, civic leaders and faith leaders to do that. And I'm proud to say, well, actually, Bristol's doing that. But it does exist and there's no denying it. That'd be partly because we have key people like Marvin Reese, Asha Craig from the black community in leadership positions that will take the mantle up quite quickly. I think I think certainly yes. I think that is true. But also one of the things about our city is that even when we do not do right for each other, we want to do right for each other. Maybe the price is too high or ignorance holds us back. So when people you know, in Bristol found out that this hesitancy was there, and I think a lot of people told, wow, this is, this is terrible. What can we do about this? Before, before we get to the solutions, why, why do you think that, that is, um, is happening? Why do you think there's hesitancy? You know, there has always been some historical hesitancy to vaccinations, and some of that is not misplaced. You know, if we look at the history of medical science, sadly, there was a time where people that were different were seen as the people to experiment or try things out on. So there is that context. And, you know, that goes on into slavery and goes on. That exists. But also what we just spoke about, about the debt. Because if you're a person and you see that, you know, people like myself are dying there, something in you really feels very broken. And I think what's broken is you really start to think, you know, for a long time, I just maybe had my doubts about systems and the way things worked. But then you're thinking, well, the same healthcare system is able to save that person's life. Why are they not saving that? So trust then becomes fractured. Yeah, lack of trust is key, isn't it? It is. That's even before we go into the the WhatsApp messages and the YouTube videos. And and they just feed into that. You you mean the anti-vaccination messages? Exactly. You already have the lack of trust and you are fed lots of things that feed that lack of trust. So you kind of go from, I'm not so sure, to now I'm definitely sure I am not going to. And there is a whole torrent of those messages every day that do go out. But one of the things that is happening is that as more people are being vaccinated, we also know that that level of hesitancy is starting to drop and will keep dropping. 
Yeah, I was going to ask you that because surely if it is about trust, I mean, if you have key people in the community that have had a vaccine and they're like, actually, it was fine. It was okay. Then that has more of an impact probably than any kind of NHS health kind of messaging because it comes from somebody that they can relate to and they understand. That's very true. And particularly in Bristol. So when you hear people regurgitating these kind of conspiracy theories, the the pandemic and all this kind of stuff, as somebody at the front line who sees the actual, you know, the impact of this, you're now vaccinating people daily. How does it feel for you? Is it is it infuriating? I certainly find it very saddening and less yeah. infuriating, but more frustrating because I know that some mm-hmm. of the, the root cause of the reason why people would entertain these theories is that void of trust. And, you know, a few months ago, some of these things really started as kind of internet mimes and jokes. And in that space, what was a careless bit of banter or what was a bit of somebody trying to pull someone else's leg has grown to become almost mainstream. There is also the fact that there are some nefarious activities that are also happening there where people are deliberately trying to play on other people's... I was going to say that, that in the kind of QAnon, still the vote in America, the whole kind of Bill Gates Foundation conspiracy, they call it the Great Reset. Now it's the pandemic is a scam. You've had that kind of fed a bit by people like Trump and others. I, I mean, you say it sort of started out as a joke for some people. I think it is quite insidious and I think it's quite deliberate and intentional. It, it is. Um, and I don't know where that's coming from. Why... why why are people trying to undermine that effort? I mean, uh, I mean, I'm sure there are people that actually believe this, but where is it all coming from? When I mentioned that it's all started as a bit of a joke, one of the things that I was conscious of is that many of us, when we first maybe came across those things, you know, found them amusing. And actually, there was a time when people shared them because they thought they were amusing. And as time has gone on... Okay, the response to that, right. Okay, the response to it. Yeah, and I yeah. think what has then gone on is that unfortunately, as it's kind of gotten shared, those things have now gone around the houses when all it takes is for somebody who has a certain degree of responsibility or a platform to offer some vague authenticity to those. And, you know, that kind of builds on it. So you see something repeatedly that is false, Somebody there says, well, you know, why should we not believe that this may be true? And just like any other sort of falsehood, if you keep getting exposed to it, if it doesn't wear you down to believe in it, it certainly wears you down enough to not believe the truth as much as you would anymore. So what then happens is some of those statistics where people will say, well, I am less likely or less willing to have a vaccination because of that repeated exposure. Why in particular are, um, it says the BME communities have been targeted specifically on COVID conspiracy. Is that more just because, as you say, there is a degree of lack of trust or cynicism towards services, so sort of being exploited for that reason? One of the bits that really saddens me about that is I almost feel as if it is playing on the trauma that those communities have already experienced during COVID. It is playing on the fact that these communities have seen some of the worst experiences. They've lost loved ones. So they are more, much more anxious. And then if you have this sort of insidious approach, they are vulnerable to 
listening and taking in some of those things. I remember seeing early videos in Wuhan in China, videos in Italy that were horrific. And it was like, oh, my God, what are we kind of getting? And then all of a sudden, I know journalists that were trying to get access to hospitals and weren't allowed. And I do know that there was a top-down message not to, I guess, overhype things and not to have the nation into hysteria. But I do wonder if quality, good information and visual documentation, which actually has been happening a bit of late, could have happened earlier to sort of nip this stuff in the bud? I think it is a fair point. And I guess it's one of those questions that we will look back on. Because, again, our culture, being British, is that, you know, we have a stiff upper lip. There are things that we don't really talk about debt. We don't talk about ill health. Those are kind of private conversations. And we also do not try to whisk people up into a frenzy of action, nor do we whisk them up into a frenzy of sympathy or fear. So I think getting that balance right was certainly something that nobody's ever really had to do, maybe since the World War, of actually having to get a population to see something as as a common threat to everybody's well-being, to respond to that. If you don't respond to something and you rely something to fester and develop, the, the myth can build as a truth. So I just wonder if maybe the NHS, the government, the hospitals, doctors, I mean, doctors were being told not to talk to the media by the government. And I just don't know whether that was the right strategy. I understand why, because I guess they were treating it as a wartime situation. But I think good quality information stops some of this stuff speculating, doesn't it? I mean, we've seen it in America, yeah, yeah. haven't we, with the what's happened with Trump. And now people are kind of thinking, well, actually, half the stuff that we were told were going to happen hasn't. And, and, and where do they go from there? And I think it's the same thing with this. And I also think the same principle applies to what you said earlier around key community people from BME communities. I think that happens across the board. So what I'm seeing on Facebook is a lot of people who are kind of on this whole pandemic thing are kind of, oh, I don't know, I'm sort of seeing kind of people that are, I guess, probably not the type of people that are trained in discerning information. They're just kind of reacting to stuff. I guess I'm kind of talking without generalising people that are into football, people that maybe flirt with the All Lives Matter movement, people that are kind of Brexit voters. I'm I'm massively stereotyping now, but I, I know people of that kind of ilk. And they've kind of been buying this because I think their lives have been affected economically by this. So yes. we're kind of maybe annoyed and irritated. But what has happened is that a, a, a couple of people are very seriously ill in the hospital at the moment, very seriously ill. And, and, I, and I can see the impact that's had. It's kind of, like, oh, okay, this is real, isn't it? When somebody you know, who you trust and understand, is one of the couple of them in ICU, and I think the penny starts to drop then. It doesn't matter what messages you give, unless that message is coming from the right person or in the right way, it's not going to resonate. I think I think that's very true, Neil. And the good thing is that, especially because of the recent changes in the States, I feel that we are at the point where maybe truth more than ever before will have a voice yeah. and will have a louder, clearer resonance in our societies and in our world. You know, well, of course, falsehoods yeah. will still be there, but you know, it's good to know the truth will be the loudest and the clearest voice most yeah. of the time again. And I think you're right. Maybe the Trump situation in the states has maybe shifted that, and it will start re-collaborating because we've got the kind of baby out the bathwater a bit. Yeah. And also, my senses from conversations I've had 
on and off the record with people that do work, you know, like yourself or, or, or doctors or nurses, that they, they wanted to talk more about this and be on the front foot. What I want to ask you then, as somebody who sees this on a daily basis, if somebody is perpetuating some of this anti-vaccination conspiracy stuff on social media, somebody you know or somebody you can hear talking about it, how can how can we challenge that effectively? What would you suggest we do? I mean, do we even challenge it? Do we ignore it? What, what What's the advice you would give? I mean, for me, if somebody that I know was putting some of that stuff out, what I would normally do is I would... I would, I would read them directly, actually, and say, what, what, you know, what's going on? And, and just try and understand where they're coming from, you know, what's happened here? Because, you know, because some people are just leaving out the trauma. That expression itself, as dangerous and harmful as it is, can actually be sitting on top of some bigger issues. But even after that private kind of thing, I certainly will always also come out and just offer, not to rebuke them, but to rebuke that fact and say, well, actually, I don't agree with what Fred yeah, said because yeah. this is what I agree with. I'll give that alternative date, but I will always make sure that I, I reach out to Fred before only because I don't know where Fred is at that point in time. I don't know how he's ended up you know, there, but yeah. I want to check on him as well. And So rebuke the facts, don't rebuke Fred. I like that. I think, yeah, yeah. because, you know, Fred needs help. I don't want to lose Fred. I think we must cut out a life of binary choices when it comes to people. You're not for me or against yeah. me. I'm always for you, but I'm just not for what you believe in. Lots of these people have fallen down a rabbit hole. Yeah. But I do think you're right. I think I sense a bit of a shift now. And the more people that have direct experience, the more people that are trusted in communities that can cut through, let's call it what it is, bullshit, <laughs> then actually I think we're going to be a society that hopefully will value truth again because truth is relative to a certain degree but actually sometimes truth is just truth (laughs) regardless and I think we've forgotten that there aren't degrees of truth sometimes the truth is just the bloody truth and I think in this case that's what it is and I'm giving my opinion now which I'm not supposed to do as a journalist (laughs) but I think actually you know people like yourself are right on the front line administrating vaccines saving lives and we don't need this stupidity no are you you right and I think we, we must also start to say that actually maybe not just about truth, but we need to call out falsehoods. We need to be bold enough. To yeah. say, well, that's not true. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Just that deference that we sometimes have or people holding their own peace. And things, we just need to, to say, well, actually in the new society that we live in, especially in a social media age, oh no, you got to call it out. Otherwise he just, he, he just keeps growing. Yeah. I think it's just coming back to simplicity and science and facts and challenging from that basis and as you say maybe not personalizing somebody because there will be people listening who have family members or close friends that have really bought into this stuff and i think you're right it's key not to come down too hard on them as people but attack the information i'm sounding preachy now um (laughs) let's end on a on a positive note addy in the short term when do you think we will be back to a degree of normality? I, I think things are going to change now forever, but a degree of normality and beyond that, what positives can we take from it all? I think, I think the biggest positive... Big, big questions. Big questions, big, big questions. Yeah. Is that your son? Yes. <laughs> What's his name? Josh. Don't worry. Oh, dear. 
Is he alright? I think it's I think he's waiting to come in. Let me see. Let me see. I'll be back. Let me see. No worries. No worries. It's okay. It's okay. I'm, I'm the lady stuck, you. Okay. Don't worry, man. Don't worry. It's happened to me about three times. <laughs> cool. So, so yeah, those two final questions. I think the one positive from this is really, and I know it sounds very cliche but it's the power of community. And what that means for me yeah. is that the power of us, we, not just to pursue our own, but also to learn to just look out for somebody else. Because... We've learned yeah. over there that actually when other people fall, we also feel the pain. You know, you know, we feel the pain either directly or indirectly. Whether that's because, you know, you are traumatized as well when you see figures about people dying and you read their stories and you think, oh, that could be me. But also, actually, you want to do something. There's part of our humanity that, that just isn't happy to just look after number one. And the second bit about the when do we get back to a new sense of normal, I think is I think we're going to have to learn to live with what this pandemic does to us. And it's still evolving. We're still learning. We're still changing. I think we are all going to be very different. I think one of the things that the pandemic is going to do to us is make us become a people that are less, you know, rigid. And we have to just kind of learn to go with that because the disruptions, I think, are going to last for quite some time. Once we have vaccinated people that are at risk of death, once we've vaccinated people that are in key social roles, then in terms of a lockdown situation, we can start to get yes. back to some degree of normality yes. again, yeah? I think we will do. And, but again, we have to just be patient and work. And when? Wow. When? When, Addy? When do you think that would be? <laughs> That's a million-dollar question, Neil. Um, you know, it, I think we would hope that by the end of the vaccination programme, and we're talking about, is it the early summer or thereabouts? But we're then... Yeah you know, thinking about new variants and what does that mean? So there are still bits about it. But I think what we have working for us is if we keep to the science, keep to our own sense of collective responsibility, we will free each other from this. If we if we go rogue on each other, we all lose something. And that's even before the virus even does anything. Amazing. Amazing. We're going to leave it on that note. Addy, because we've been talking a long time and it's been um, fascinating to talk to you. My only one kind of thing, you know, you spoke about a sense of community and supporting each other. Um, can I jump up the list and get a quick vaccine, <laughs> sort of like a, a backhander one next week? I'll sneak, sneak a few side exit. No? And the answer to that, really, like, you've been letting the community down. So, you know, people are shocked oh, you see that. Come on, I'm a VIP now. You know, is there no red carpet for Bedminster? I can sneak out of the queue. <laughs> no, yeah. sorry. Yeah, yeah. All right, all right. No worries. That's the great thing about this, and it is a great, it's a leveler for all that stuff, and I think. But um, yeah, I'll wait, I'll wait my turn. Don't worry. So thank you so much, Addy, and take care. Good luck with all the vaccination stuff. Thank you very much for inviting me on. Brilliant that you're doing it, and full respect to everything you do. Thank you, Neil. Good stuff, man. So I just finished talking to Addy. First impressions, what a lovely bloody bloke he was, mind. Really engaging, jolly, big-hearted, non-judgmental, even when I sort of prodded him with a few questions to be kind of critical of the government. You know, he was kind of robust, but he, he didn't sort of throw anybody under a bus. Particularly, I liked the bit when he was talking about being a bit teary. 
when he gave the first vaccine out and that kind of pressure and weight being lifted, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel. It's just good to hear somebody that's actually directly doing it. So that was interesting. And also the, 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 the fact around the whole black and minority hesitancy around the vaccination and hopefully even, you know, this podcast will kind of send that message out a bit, but also how it's been really, really key and important, the community Pied Pipers, for want of a better word, people that have real traction and connection are giving out information. So it isn't just coming from the kind of clinical professional, but from people that are trusted. I mean, trust is really key for this whole, that whole conversation that came across to me is that we need to rebuild trust again. Um, and that goes to the conspiracies, that goes for to the media, the game I'm in, you know, with the information that we give out, that goes for politicians, that goes for communities, everything that, you know, trust is really important. And when we start to lose that, is when all sorts of silliness can start happening. Thanks for listening to Bristol Unpacked. I'm Neil Maggs, and a big thanks to Rosa Eaton, our audio producer, Adam Cantwell-Corn, our executive producer, and Blue Dot for our music. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes, and if you want to support what we're doing, join the Bristol Cable, along with 2,000 others, to create a new kind of media for the city.